Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Everything being strange, I'm ready to preach now. This is just odd. You know, you usually have so many more songs and other that things that are going on. But I'm going to ask you, if you would please take your Bible and join with us in Luke chapter 4. We're going to be at verse 22. And I, I appreciate all of you who have stayed with us and continue to follow us on Facebook and YouTube as we've worked our way through Luke. If you had not been able to or you missed one, uh, you can go to our YouTube channel and you can find those there. I'm sure on our Facebook as well and find those in the past as it'll help you understand as we go forward. And we just want to continue as we go. We're in uh, Luke chapter 4, 22 through 30. The title is The Hometown Rejection. As you're turning, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? You ever heard that phrase? I think most of us have. It just captures that emotion that the better we know some people, the better, the more likely we are to find fault with them or that we have a hard time accepting maybe their accomplishments and achievements. I think many of us know that it's hard. The more we know someone that's hard, sometimes it's harder to celebrate their successes and their achievements and there's pettiness or even bitterness comes up. We, we've, ex- we've experienced this probably maybe in your own life. Well, last week, as we looked at uh, beginning of chapter four and verses, I think what was it, uh, 16 to 21 or so, we jumped almost a year ahead in the life of Jesus, as Luke records Jesus' ministry in Galilee, including a drop-in visit to his hometown, Nazareth, where we find him continuing today. And in visiting the synagogue, Jesus takes a portion of the scripture and reads Isaiah that contains the promises of Yahweh to one day restore Israel with the arrival of the Messiah. And this restoration includes salvation for those that are outsiders, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. He then concludes his reading with the statement, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's where we stopped last week. But as we continue to read the rest of this encounter in Nazareth, we're also celebrating, I want to take a moment to to recognize that we're celebrating the day of Pentecost. Today is the day of Pentecost. Landon read the prevalent portions of scripture that detailed that wonderful event. This day marks the birth of the New Testament church and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples of Christ. Interestingly, one of the points of Jesus' teaching here in this passage is the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. And we stand here this morning in celebration of that great event, that day of Pentecost, and the wonderful news that salvation has now uh, came for both not only Jews, but also for the Gentiles. However, as we read our passage today, we see that not everyone was excited and pleased at that revelation. Instead, they responded with a hostility that led them to attempt to murder Jesus. So join with me as we read through that passage. Luke chapter 4, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Let's pray. Father, Open up our minds and hearts as we read your word. For it is a paramount, it is a special word given to us today. And Father, I pray that you would give us uh, free of distraction. We thank you that we are here together in person. We pray for those that are not able to join us yet. And we look forward to a full homecoming of, of your people here at OVBC. 
But Lord, I pray that you help us to speak words that are edifying, that build up. Let us know the difference between just my mere opinion, but yet the truth that comes. And may we be a recip- uh, responsive to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We thank you for this opportunity. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it started out really good. And all the words, that they were great. They marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. It all started out well. This was a group of people who, like the rest of the Palestine nation, the Israeli nation, was ready for the Messiah to appear and to deliver them from the Roman oppression. The message of deliverance from our suffering is always well accepted and appreciated. That is what we are looking for. And they were ready to hear this message of hope and restoration. They received it with gladness and with joy. They were excited and surprised at the eloquence and the gracious words that Jesus spoke. And with elation, they anticipated how Jesus would demonstrate this great long-awaited deliverance and restoration that they had looked forward for so long. And this anticipation is found in their statement, Is this not Joseph's son? Now, at first glance, this might seem like a slight or a passive-aggressive knock on his identity. And it could reasonably be construed as that. They could have been expressing amazement at this teacher who they all knew and had grown up with. They could have been wondering how this carpenter's son could claim to be the Messiah. They could have been confused about what he was actually saying. But I believe the better way to look at this statement is that they expected him now to prove it by performing some wondrous miracle in their hometown. In essence, they were proclaiming dibs because he was from Nazareth. They had heard about all the miracles he had done in neighboring Capernaum and Canaan and down in Jerusalem. Surely the word had spread that the famous John the baptizer had declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They had heard how Jesus had turned water into wine at the wedding and had cleansed out the temple by driving out the mountain changers. In Luke 4, 14, we had read that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report went about, uh, went, uh, a report about him went out through all of the surrounding countries. So his reputation had preceded him. There was an expectation. They were looking forward to signs and wonders. It was now their turn. Jesus was one of them. Surely he would do some wondrous miracles, maybe even something much more powerful and noteworthy now that he was in his own hometown. It would be similar to you and I today in our town if someone who grew up came back and was a celebrity or maybe a military hero or a decorated athlete. We would expect something more special from them, a, a stronger connection. It's almost that phrase, don't forget where you come from. We want to honor those residents of ours that come from here and we expect more from them. And that this is their attitude is evident by Jesus' response. Because the reason I come to this is because Jesus' response seems kind of odd as he questions them. Look at verse 23. In verse 23, Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, now do here or do here in your hometown as well. Instead of demonstrating his identity as a Messiah by performing miracles, Jesus here is going to establish his identity by actually displaying his omniscience. 
as the son of God. He was able to read their thoughts and attitudes behind the questioning statement. There is no doubt, Jesus says. He understands what's in their heart, what they're thinking. He knows what their attitude truly is. Jesus tells them exactly what they are thinking. The proverb Jesus uh, uses is one that is actually accusing them or accusing him of hypocrisy. Physician, heal yourself is actually a, 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 a proverb of hypocrisy. Again, think of it. A beautician or a mechanic or a plumber or someone who's in construction. They're the ones that are out doing all these things, but yet if you go to their own home, their, their, hair, their children's hair isn't cut or his plumbing isn't fixed or he has these projects he's never done. Why? Because he's always working for someone else. We understand this. It happens in our own life. And that's really what that proverb is saying when they're saying, or when Jesus says, you're thinking physician, heal yourself. They're declaring that he's, they're accusing him of hypocrisy. Take care of your own. It also has a, a meaning to tend to one's own defects before those in others. And so Jesus is saying, you're thinking of me as a, as a hypocrite because I'm not doing great miracles here. Do this here in your hometown as well. They want Jesus to perform miracles to prove the claim that he is the anointed one. If it's truly fulfilled today because of you, then prove it. Show us that you're the Messiah. Show us that you're the anointed one, that you've come to proclaim good news to us. They're demanding that since he's one of them, he should do them a special favor and give them proof. Jesus had visited Canaan and Capernaum prior to, a visit, to his visit here. His miracles and fame had spread throughout the area. Now do it here. They're looking forward to it. They want to take Jesus' ministry and his message of salvation, his proclamation of good news, and they really want to turn it into a carnival show for their own entertainment. Sadly, for those original readers of Luke, this accusation of hypocrisy was a shadow of Luke chapter 23, verse 34 where you'll recall this at Jesus' crucifixion. This cry went out against Jesus from the people. The people stood by while Jesus was on the cross, and they were watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, then come down from this cross. This is echoing that as well. Jesus had experienced this same hard attitude before earlier, when he was in Jerusalem, and he was not persuaded by it. In John chapter 2, which happened almost a year before this event, we read that now when Jude, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, the miraculous wonders. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Verse 23 of John chapter 2 says this, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So when Jesus is here and he's rebuking them, he says, I know what's in your heart. I know why you are here. I know why you're being kind to me. You are looking for some special favor, some miraculous wonders. You're not really here to hear what I have to say. Jesus knew that their hearts were already hardened towards them. He knew that no amount of wondrous miracles and good works were going to make a difference. Unbelief had taken deep 
root in their hearts. He's just uh, uh, Joseph, uh, Jesus, Joseph, the son of Joseph, the carpenter. What could he really do? And like their ancestors before them, they had deserted Yahweh and they were only interested in a sideshow. At this point, you and I might imagine that Jesus would be patient and gentle with his hometown. However, he quickly and directly rebukes their hard attitude by reminding them of the dangers of unbelief. With two examples of the Old Testament, read silently with me at verse 24, going back to Luke chapter 4. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus again quotes a proverb, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This reflects the attitude that familiarity breeds contempt that we've spoken of earlier. Theologian Walter Liefeld remarks that whoever achieves greatness is never fully trusted back home. We all understand these sayings and these attitudes it represents. The more we know someone, the harder it is to accept them as something else. It's harder to trust that someone has really changed. And many times that's fueled by doubt and envy, jealousy and hatred. Many times that attitude is so focused on someone else, even though in reality it's because we think so little of ourselves. It displays a pettiness and a covetousness in order to hide our own shame and frustration with our lot in life. Yet what drives their heart attitude here in this portion of scripture is unbelief. I mean, think, here's the Messiah. Today, this is fulfilled. I am the one who's, who's bringing salvation, but they truly do not believe the words he is saying. Jesus connects their attitude again with that of Israel during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Most of you might remember that event described here in Elijah's ministry from our study from last summer. King Ahab and his evil queen Jezebel were very wicked. And they constantly rebelled against Yahweh. They had killed the prophets of Yahweh. They forbid any worship in his name. And they generally led their subjects into wicked acts and to sin. Elijah was sent by Yahweh to warn them of an upcoming drought that would devastate the land. It was a, a warning, a curse, a judgment in saying, repent, turn back to Yahweh. But yet they never did so. However, as we know, they did not. Elijah was sent into the wilderness where God took care of and provided all that Elijah needed to survive. Yahweh did this by connecting Elijah with a Gentile woman. Now remember, Israel were the chosen children of God. It was to them that the law and the covenant was given. The Gentiles could expect nothing gracious from Yahweh except judgment and his wrath. Yet God in his loving mercy sent Elijah to this Gentile woman. And it was through Elijah's ministry that God provided food for this poor widow who was not of Israel, who was not a Jew during this devastating drought, and even raised her son from the dead after a fatal illness. Elisha was the prophet who replaced uh, Elijah. 
King Ahab had perished after he also fa- but he also faced wicked kings during his tenure as a prophet, as God's spokesperson. It was during this time that a Syrian soldier came to Elisha pleading to be healed from leprosy. Now, as as you read Jesus' comment, there were many people, many Jews living in Israel at that time who also suffered from leprosy. Again, this Gentile who has no claim on the goodness, mercy, and grace of Yahweh. Yet God once again demonstrates his love and mercy and heals Naaman from his leprosy. Two events that is showing that God had deserted his unfaithful people, and went and blessed Gentile people who were not sons of promise, who were not the sons of Abraham. Now, by reminding them of these events in their own history, Jesus is rebuking them for their unbelief. You are just like your fathers. He equated their hardened hearts with that of Israel during the ministry of Elisha and Elijah. They would not have appreciated this comparison. Nor is you and I when someone says, oh, you're just like your dad or you're acting just like your mother. That's usually not something that we take as a compliment when someone's using it in that type of tone. Yet they were guilty. They were very guilty. By reminding them of their events in their own history, he's rebuking them for their unbelief. And they proved him right. As we continue in verse 28, we see how their heart comes into action verse 28 and when they heard these things all the synagogue was filled with what wrath and they rose up and they drove Jesus out of the town and they brought him to the brow of a hill in which the town was built so that they could throw him down a cliff their intention was to throw him down a cliff and then stone him that was typically how you would do it You would throw some down the hill and then you would take stones and you would stone him. Their intent was to murder him for what he was speaking. They responded just as their ancestors did. They wanted to kill the prophet of God. The response of the people is hostility. And that hostility led to a rejection. It led to hatred and murder as they adopt a a mob mentality and they drive Jesus to the hill with the intent of throwing him down and killing him. Walter Leithfield writes that Jesus' audience is becoming more and more enraged as they realize that they will receive no special favors from Jesus and that he considers himself above home ties and traditions. He will do no miracles and signs there because their heart was filled with unbelief and knowing that that unbelief was too deep, too strong for any signs and wonders to work. And we see this throughout scripture, throughout Jesus' ministry, throughout the disciples' ministry. They take offense at his words, words that were meant to be a warning, a word of rebuke to turn their hearts back towards God, but it was of no avail as they turned quickly against him and rejected his claim as being the Messiah. Ironically enough, Jesus does perform one miracle, as we read in verse 30, as they attempt to kill him, but passing through their midst, he went their way. Their attempt to silence him is thwarted as Jesus miraculously exits the crowd with no one taking notice or able to stop them. Now, obviously, as you and I read this portion of Scripture, This is not a good picture of the people of Nazareth. This encounter with Jesus exposes a gaping hole in their heart. 
their unbelief is on full display through their hostility. Their attitude in the presence of the Messiah is no different from their forefathers. Just as Elijah and Elisha's warning fell on deaf ears, so did Jesus's. By rejecting him, they rejected their only hope for deliverance and restoration and salvation that he was freely offering to them. And it's not only Nazareth, as you and I said here, it's not only Nazareth that's going to suffer from this issue of unbelief and rejection. As Jesus traveled throughout Palestine, he was greeted by enthusiastic crowds that many times were more interested in miracles and motivated motivated by selfishness than by a deep desire for the things of God. Now this should be no surprise to us as the Apostle Paul remarked to the church of Corinth that the Jews demand the sign. Remember the Gentiles, they want wisdom, but the Jews, they demand a sign. Prove to us who you are. Now, this hostility would follow Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry right up to the cross. Their unbelief directly, now listen to this, their unbelief, their unbelief led directly to their failure to recognize the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one that they were praying for, they had put their hopes on, the one that they were anticipating. Their their unbelief led directly to their failure to receive the blessings of the promises to deliver the poor, the outcast, the blind, the enslaved, and the impressed. And it also led to their failure to respond positively to the work of the Holy Spirit and the offer of salvation. As Jesus walked from there, they lost these things because of their unbelief. Now, before you and I are too harsh on them, as we read this, we should take a moment to examine our own hearts and those that we love and care for. It is easy for you and I to sit here this morning as we read this portion of Scripture and says, oh, we would not have joined that crowd in rejecting Jesus. Or that we would not have joined them in in attempting to murder him. We would have accepted his gracious words. We would not have expected him to do great wonders. Yet we too at least one time in our life suffered from this same heart condition. Unbelief. In fact, this attitude is truly an epidemic that infects all of humanity. No one is immune. No one is safe from its devastating effects. Scripture tells us that all all of humanity has fallen from God and that all have sinned. As Adam fell into sin, so has all of humanity. And this has left us under the curse of sin and death a condition that no one can escape from. As you look on the monitor here, the result of that condition of unbelief is absolute alienation from God. This is what you and I must understand. (coughs) At one time, we had absolute alienation from God. We were far from his promises. We needed him, but yet we were alienated from God. Take your Bibles if you would. And you take, take, take your, I'm sorry, take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. In this passage of Scripture, we read a sobering expression of unbelief, of this absolute alienation. Romans chapter 1, you know this portion of Scripture. Look at verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Underline that if you would. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In this section, we read of God's wrath being revealed against sin. And what is the reason for the wrath being revealed? Well, Paul observes it's our sinful actions and it flows from suppression of the truth. That's what's happening here in Nazareth. Jesus just read a portion of scripture and says, today it is fulfilled. But they want to suppress the truth. They want to kill the Messiah, kill the messenger. And that's what's going on today. That's what all of humanity suffers from. The Bible says no one has any excuse not to see the the general revelation of God, the common grace that he gives to each and every one of us. See, our sin is not just because we're alienated from God, but we're alienated from God because we have suppressed the truth. Again, this is the state of the whole world. This was the state of the audience of Jesus. And it once was our condition. It is only by the grace of God that we have been delivered from unbelief. You'll see here on the monitor the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And once we were but we've been redeemed. We've been delivered from that. What is sad about this encounter with his hometown is that sitting there, listening to Jesus, there in that crowd seeking to kill him are those that are in desperate need of deliverance from oppression, from blindness and enslavement. They needed a savior, a redeemer, the salvation that was freely offered. But their condition of unbelief led them to reject the words, the identity, and the ministry of the Son of God. And it has the same effect on many people today. We are residents and citizens of Nazareth. For we too look at the Son of God and we demand miraculous things for us. Do something for me and reject his words of truth. Take your Bibles and turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And here we're going to read that many will struggle with the preaching of the gospel. This should not surprise us. It did not surprise Christ. He knew exactly what was going on. People will not be satisfied with the message of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Join with me in verse 18. For the word of the cross is what? 
folly or foolishness, depending on what your translation. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is the one who is wise? Where is your scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolishness of the, of the made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, they suppressed the truth. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ what? Crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles, speaking of us. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen to this. It is through the preaching of God's word that God has promised salvation. Let me share it once again. It is through the preaching of God's word that God has promised salvation. It's not through signs and wonders, though God did use that in the beginning of the New Testament church and, and miracles could still happen today. God can still work, but it's not through miracles and displays of intellectual philosophies and reasons that God brings people to himself, but by the pure, unadulterated preaching of of the gospel. The good news that a savior has arrived bringing salvation to the outcast, to the blind, to the enslaved and the oppressed. That is the message of Christ. It is the message of the disciples, the apostles, and the history and traditions of the church. And even today, salvation is only found in the preaching. It is by hearing the word of faith. And here's what you and I need today as we come into a close. Is you and I need a prophet. We need one who will speak tough, hard, and difficult words of truth to us. We don't need someone with smooth and eloquent words that make us feel good and make us feel better. We don't need a life coach. We don't need a motivator. We don't need a philosopher or a reasoner or debater. We need a Savior. We need the words of Christ spoken to us. We must respond positively to the claims of Christ and give him the worship that is due to him. Pastor Thabiti out of Virginia writes this. He says, to honor Jesus, you have to receive him as he really is. The Messiah, the Son of God, who alone rescues sinners from God's wrath and makes those same sinners righteous in God's sight. Unfortunately, even those that were close to Jesus, who grew up alongside of him, who knew his father, who maybe even had Jesus fix their door, their table, whatnot as a carpenter, those who knew his brothers and sisters and his parents rejected him, just as many did during his human ministry here on earth. This continued after his death as the disciples preached him across the known world. This pattern of Luke's writing is found in, the, in this gospel and in, in, in Acts. It's simple. There's the presentation of the gospel. It is followed by the rejection of the gospel and then a turn to the Gentiles with the offer of the gospel. This inclusion of the Gentiles, as we look at the story of Elijah and Elisha, that's what Jesus is saying here. 
This inclusion of the Gentiles is great news. And why is it great news? Because you and I are Gentiles. We too can receive God's wonderful gift of grace, his promises of salvation. However, this salvation will only come through Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness... He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How do we know God? He says, in the face of Jesus Christ. The invisible God who became visible man for us. And in him we can see God. That's the only thing that can break this enslavement, this impression, this blindness that makes us outcast. That of unbelief. The fact that you and I have received this gift, and I'm assuming that most of you have accepted Christ, you have shared that with me. The fact that we have received this gift in spite of our one time of being in unbelief ought to lead you and I to several steps. And here's where I want to put it down. There's two things. You and I, because you and I once were unbelief, God has now enabled us to see and he has saved us, should lead you and I to have sympathy for those that are suffering from unbelief. We need to have sympathy for those that are suffering from unbelief. We need to recognize that that is what ails our friends and our family, our loved ones, our neighbors. It's the, it is the, the condition of unbelief. They have suppressed the truth. And because of that, they're alienated from God. In Matthew chapter 9, Verse 35, we read that Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. He did do that. When he saw the crowds, it says that he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out labors into his harvest. The fields are white with those with unbelief. He's called us to have sympathy for them. But unfortunately, I believe too many churches, too many pastors, too many Christians, we act as if no one else is suffering from that. We've forgotten what state that we were delivered out of. We need to understand that unbelievers are hungry. They are hungry and they are thirsty. Because they keep trying to find satisfaction in created things, not in the creator. Get that. People are looking for salvation in created things, not in the creator. By created things, I'm talking about uh, love. They're talking about relationships, experiments, uh, pleasure experiments, all sorts of other things rather than the creator. And let me tell you, you and I know <clears throat> that these things will not satisfy their unquenching thirst and hunger for fulfillment, for purpose, and love. We must also understand that not only are they hungry, but they are also hurting. Most times they're not even aware of why they are hurting or the cause of their suffering and pain. They do not realize that they are outcasts from the family of God. They are blinded by their hostile minds. They are enslaved to their sin and they're oppressed by Satan. 
They need a savior, a redeemer. They need the words of life. And you and I have those words of life. And this leads us to the second action step. Not only do we need to have a sympathy for those that are marked by unbelief, but number two, we need to have a burden for those suffering from unbelief. And that's more than just a sympathy or an empathy. That's a burden. One that leads us to action, to be proactive. Once we see the need, you and I must act. And that begins not only with an affection for Christ, but also for those that need him. As we think about and pray for and interact with unbelievers, we have no place for feeling superior. And I just hate it when we Christians do that. And sometimes we do it unconsciously and unwaveringly. And I, 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 I pray that you would just pray, God, expose the ways in which I may respond like that or act like that towards others. Too many Christians behave as those that have received a wonderful gift, but then we neglect in sharing it with others. We forget that we too were once hungry and thirsty and hurting. We got ours. They deserve what they get. We cannot have that attitude. That is not of Christ. You and I have called to share the gospel. We need to have a burden for that. And faithfulness in sharing the gospel or evangelism will come from a deep compassion for people. A burden. If we are greatly burdened for people in their unbelief, then we will be compelled to speak to them about Jesus. We will speak into their hurts, into their pain, into their suffering. Conversely, and I want you to listen to this, and this is tough words. Conversely, unfaithfulness in evangelism. A lack of sympathy, a lack of burden, a lack of sharing the gospel corresponds with our lack of real love for people. And let it not be said of us that we have a lack of love for people. I know your life is busy. I know your time constraints. We all have them. But yet in our living and doing, and I'm not talking about going door to door, by the way, that would probably not be accepted and appropriate right now. But yet in our moving and, and, and living with people and working with people, we have the opportunity to speak into those areas of their lives where Christ speaks. The Christian life is about having our minds renewed by the word of God. When we read the scriptures and we see Jesus' compassion towards those who are apart from God, we find ourselves getting that much-needed reminder. Looking through the lenses of Scripture, we see a world around us that is hungry and hurting. The compassionate response is like Jesus, is to open up our mouth and explain the gospel to them. Now that is different than preaching to them. We speak the gospel to them. And again, I recommend you, if you do not have a copy of the Gospel Primer, then please see me. I want to get one in your hands. That explains the, 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 how the Gospel, but also the effects of the Gospel and how it lives out in our lives. Despite the constant rejections and pushback and hostility, as you and I continue through Luke, we see that Jesus continues to follow the Father's plan of redemption. And so should we, despite any rejection, any pushback, any difficulties that we have in sharing the gospel. Let us commit to doing that 
in our generation. For they are alienated from God. For they have suppressed the truth because of unbelief that leads to a hardened heart. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I ask you just pray, uh, just close your eyes for a moment. Bow your heads. For I'd like for us to just to pause and consider this passage in Luke and what I've shared this morning. I'd like for you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to respond to whatever he's calling you to do. Have you become too familiar with Jesus that it's led to contempt? Oh, you know all about Jesus. You don't need to know anymore. I've heard all the stories. They don't need them anymore. Have you taken Jesus for granted and his message, his wonderful gift of salvation? Do you expect more from Jesus, more than just the words of life? Please do not fail to recognize who Jesus is. If there's any here that do not know him, I pray that you would call to him. The Bible tells us to repent of our sin, to recognize that we need a savior. Repent of our sin and turn and trust in him. Are you sharing the good news with others? What's your level of sympathy for those suffering from unbelief? How is that burden? Is it heavy in sharing? If not, would you pray that God would strike you with that, that you can share the gospel with those in need? Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for Luke. We thank you for, his, for your word. And I pray, Lord, that it gives us certainty about who Jesus is and that his words are the words of life. Make us sufficient for such things. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.